This is An Economy of One, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy, its life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, economyofone.com, economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Dr. Betsy McCoy. She's chairman and founder of a Committee to Reduce Infection Deaths. She's a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research and a former lieutenant governor of New York State and author of the book Beating Obamacare, one of my favorite people in the whole world to talk to. Betsy, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, thank you. I feel that way about you because your show is such a public service. Well, thank you. so full of vital information. Thank you. I appreciate it. I want to talk to you about two things, and we're going to get to to the other one, uh, the obvious one, in a few minutes. But uh, uh, Katie, who you knew well, uh, my producer, said that, you know, one of your passions for a long time has been infection deaths, and and you recently wrote uh, a really good column about how much of the the infection deaths, like MRSA and and uh, some of these other really bad things, never get reported. They, they, well, that's right. Ask families who have had a family member in the hospital suffering from one of these infections. The fact is when someone dies from a hospital infection, it seldom appears less than half the time on the death certificate. Now, it's up to each state what rules they have for what goes on a death certificate, but the CDC has failed to put any pressure on states to make death certificates truthful. And I know there are many people listening to us right now, Gary, who have not only lost a loved one, but then felt the anger, the frustration that the death certificate was a lie, that it it simply listed what the patient, what the diagnosis the patient had when the patient went into the hospital, rather than the infection that actually killed that patient. Now, why do they do that? Is that a liability issue? I mean, do they think they're going to get sued? Because well, of that? that's part of it. That's part of it. And uh, the fact is that public health authorities and even the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, whose job it is to to monitor and reduce these infections, they just like to downplay it because the fact is they cater to the hospitals rather than really going to bat for the patients. Now, I, I was, uh, you know, we've all heard of, of uh, MRSA, kind of a, a staff uh, infection. It's called methicillin-resistant staph, right? Staph that's hard to treat because yeah. it doesn't respond to most drugs. And that's that's pretty much everywhere uh, in this. And country. the big one is C. diff, as you know. Yeah, C. diff. Uh, in in uh, uh, anticipating you coming on over the weekend, I was just kind of skimming through things and uh, came across a uh, AP article about a new fungus they're finding in uh, Candida auris. Yeah, in That's New right. York and New Jersey. Well, it, it is in New York and New Jersey. It's in other states as well, although primarily in the middle Atlantic states. It's killed over 60 people in the U.S., which, of course, is a very small number compared to the the uh, tens of thousands of people who die every year from hospital infections. But this one is a concern because the mortality rate is 60 percent. You don't really have a shot at surviving once you get this. And um, it is spreading. Even more so is another one called CR. 
CRRE, carpobenum resistant bacteria, mm -hmm. that is spreading like wildfire and has been for about a decade. Uh, and uh, the, the CDC has done very little. They can't even tell you how many infections there are around the country. Believe it or not, this is one of the really incredible things. The CDC's data on hospital infection is six years old oh, and is taken from a tiny sampling of hospitals, literally a very small sample, that excludes all the population centers like New York City, Boston, Southern California, Florida, where so many hospitals are. You can't stalk a killer. You can't defeat a killer if you don't even know where it is. Yeah. Well, six years is like six-year-old data. Six-year-old data. That's like that's like a hundred thousand mutations of a bacteria, isn't it? That's right. Can you imagine? Now, this is the same organization that that has spent hundreds of millions of dollars, billions now, on Ebola mm -hmm. in Africa. They have built labs all over uh, Central. They can now tell you when there's a case of Ebola anywhere in Africa, but they can't tell you how many hospital infections there are in Ohio or New York or Florida or California. To me, that's an outrage. Now, you know, you've, you've been in, into this for a long time. Uh, you've studied it. Uh, and, and forgive my ignorance, but what makes a, a MRSA a MRSA? How do we get uh, a, a bacteria, a fungus, that is so resistant, how does it reach that point well, that we can't is, fix it? This is evolution, Gary. This has been happening since the beginning of time that these bacteria evolve. Okay. It's only recently that we have started to identify the rapidity of the evolution in response to the fact that most of these germs only live in hospitals. That's the only place you'll find them, hospitals really? and nursing homes and rehab centers. You won't find CRE uh, or this Candida auris anyplace else. And these germs live in hospitals and other healthcare environments, and they morph in response to the environment. So when there's a lot of one type of antibiotic being used, they genetically change, and of course, the life cycle of these bacteria is so short that they morph rapidly, and within a matter of months, they have changed themselves. And they've also attached some of their genetic mutations to other kinds of germs, which makes us very worried because the drug resistance is leaping from one type of bacteria to another. You know, I, I did uh, uh, get a little comfort by uh, a couple of senators uh, in the last few days did put forth some serious legislation uh, regulating the ingredients of homemade soap. So uh, I'm pretty excited that uh, they're on top of this. Yes, but here's what we really <laughs> need to do. Here's the other I'm, I'm laughing. I okay, I, I was being satirical there. So. Yeah, but here's what we really need to do. The number one predictor of who gets a hospital infection, mm -hmm. it's not how old you are. It's not the diagnosis that brought you into the hospital. The number one predictor is what room you're assigned to. If you're assigned to a hospital room and a preceding patient in that room, even three weeks before, a month before, three months before, had an infection, your risk goes way up because wow. that patient was discharged a long time ago, but the germs that patient left behind are still lurking there waiting to kill you. Now, it's, it, you think of a hospital as 
uh, fairly conscientious about sterilizing things and cleaning things. No, is, is no it that's they simply don't? not true. Okay. The studies show, and I've, there are just so many of them, that over 50% of the surfaces, even in an operating room, that are supposed to be cleaned are overlooked by the cleaners, 50%. Wow. And in patient rooms, consistently, at least 50% of the surfaces are overlooked. And we've studied which surfaces. If you have to eat a sandwich in a patient's hospital room, put it on the toilet seat. That is seldom overlooked. That's one of the cleanest places in the hospital room. But don't put it on that over-the-bed table or that night table or that next to that privacy curtain because they seldom get cleaned. Now, what... what what what's the answer to this? I mean, it, it technology. It, okay. And we have to fight inertia. For example, there are now new technologies that can be installed in a hospital that 24/7 continuously disinfect that hospital room in a non-toxic way, mm-hmm. so you don't even have to move the patient out of the room. Oh wow! But the CDC every year says, "Oh, we better study these a little more." Can you imagine? If no lives were being lost, take your time. Yeah. But hundreds of thousands of people are dying. That's incredible. That's it. Speaking, of, you know, and, and once again, I I shun hospitals like the plague. No pun intended. But um, you know, it, it just makes you not want to get sick. And since we're well, who has a choice? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, the fact is, if these germs, these superbugs that resist antibiotics continue to rage on, and the CDC continues to not do its job, it is going to be too dangerous Yeah. to go to a hospital for cancer therapy, chemotherapy, serious heart surgery, or so many other things, yeah. because those invasive procedures open you up literally, literally, to these germs, and we have to be able to treat them. Yeah, I, I would agree. I talked to uh, Representative Jim Jordan last week and and uh, talked to him a little bit about this tax reform. Uh, that why why is tax reform stalled? Because Obamacare uh, repeal stalled, and he was trying to explain to me the the process of Congress, which is <clears throat> worse than making sausage. But uh, I kind of liked what I I read today on the 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 tax reform ideas, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. I think the tax reform package is terrific, and I hope that the uh, House members, Ryan particularly, will not uh, stand in the way insisting that this is, quote, paid for within 10 years, because the fact is 10 years is an eternity in politics. Go for the 10-year temporary tax break. Let's enjoy the prosperity, and, and then we'll fix it again. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating when President Obama was in office, uh, nobody cared about uh, balancing out the the taxes and the spending, and now all of a sudden it's a major thing when we want to cut taxes. Right, so, but uh, let's, let's not get bamboozled by that. If we have right. a great tax cut, the nation will flourish, Republicans will stay in control, and we'll pass it again. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll grow out of some of these problems. Uh, with of further course. reform, you know, so uh, 
You sound well, like a great Reaganite to me, Gary. Yeah, well, you know, he, he was one of my heroes of the past, you know, so uh, uh, loved his policies. Well, Betsy, this is uh, always a real pleasure for me. It's been too long since we talked. Uh, Thank you. Anytime. I love, love, love to talk to you on the air or off. I appreciate it. And we will tap you on the shoulder again soon. So, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I read a couple of things this week that, uh, depending on how you look at it, can uh, be optimistic or maybe a little less optimistic. I'm not sure. Um, one of them was a, uh, uh, a book called The Complacent Class that talks about uh, or draws the conclusion that maybe America has lost its entrepreneurial spirit. And that's what really grabs my attention. When any, whenever anybody says, we're not entrepreneurs anymore, we're not producing things anymore, we're not creating things anymore, um, to me, that's an ignorant statement. What we're doing is we're producing things and creating things in a different way. Now, it's hard for a baby boomer like myself to, to utter the phrase paradigm shift, but the fact is there's been a paradigm shift. Um, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I was born in the 50s. And my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned several companies. And that was the environment I grew up in. <clears throat> From the time I was little, um, I, I never, never really thought about working for someone. I never thought about getting a job somewhere. Um, my whole life from the time I was little was, okay, what can I do to make money? What can I sell? What can I create to make money? And uh, so growing up, as I got older, it was still the same. I, I, I owned my first uh, real company, um, had its own tax ID number and that kind of stuff at 18, the youngest you can really own a company uh, on your own. And uh, I've never looked back. I've never really worked for anybody. Now, when I was in college, yeah, I took jobs and uh, worked by the hour and got paid by the hour, that kind of stuff. But it was never a career move. It was uh, just a necessary step to getting what I ultimately wanted. So I don't think the entrepreneurial spirit is gone in America. I think part of it is a reset, if you will, because of uh, necessity. If you have everything you want, if uh, all your needs are being met, then you don't really think about uh, doing something different to get a different result. You've heard the old phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, if you don't have anything you necessarily need or want, you're not particularly motivated to invent anything. But the attitude is there. The desire is there. Now we got to backfill the education and opportunity and foster that entrepreneurial spirit. 
I think this is a positive, even though it has some some negative connotation to it, that these kids are not prepared financially. They're not financially literate. And to me, that's a, a uh, problem that certainly the educational system can address, but more importantly, the family, the parents need to address that problem. I learned about money and business and savings and debt and profit margin and cost of materials and that kind of stuff um, from my parents. I did not learn that in school until much, much later. Learned it more in college than uh, certainly high school. But I had an advantage. I had an entrepreneurial father that uh, knew that information and wanted to make sure that I learned it. We have to do that. We have to get that information out there. We have to encourage that entrepreneurial spirit. And it may be encouraging young people to develop things that we don't understand. I don't understand a lot of the digital and technological apps and applications that are out there right now. I would never use uh, an Uber, but a lot of people do. Um, I would never use some of the technology that's out there for what it's being used for. But that doesn't mean it's not useful and not profitable in some form. So our job is support, encouragement, and education. We need to get these kids educated. We need to involve them in our companies. Seek out interns, invite them into your organization, and let them learn what you go through. If they're entrepreneurs at heart, that'll come to the surface sharing that experience. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dr. Edwin Fulner. He's the president of the Heritage Foundation, actually the founder of the uh, Heritage Foundation, uh, called by the New York Times, the Parthenon of the Conservative Metropolis. High praise from the New York Times. Um, it's the first time we've been able to talk to him. He set the course Heritage early on, building the organization to 250-member team, and it's become a permanent part of the Washington, uh, D.C. area and influential to the policymaking on Capitol Hill. Ed, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be with you. Uh, uh, it's a very exciting day, actually, to be with you. I had the great privilege of being down in the Rose Garden a couple hours ago. Did you? With our president and the vice president and uh, – had a great exchange personally with the vice president, that great Midwesterner, Mike Pence. Yep. And, yep. Uh, and just was so thrilled that the president had the guts to follow through on what he promised the people of Ohio and 
all the people of America to pull out of the Paris Accord. You know, it was, I, it was exciting. We we just had a caller ask me what I thought of the speech, and I haven't had a chance to to listen to it yet. But uh, you know, my opinion of any of these accords, going back to Kyoto and all of those, is really to to try and handcuff us and give the rest of the world a little economic advantage, isn't it? Well, it's not even a little economic advantage. The president pointed out in his speech how many billions of dollars would be coming out of the American taxpayers. And he said very eloquently, he said, you know, I was elected to represent the people of Youngstown, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, and Detroit. <laughs> and those are our people, boy. He said, no. I was not elected to represent the people of Paris. Yeah, and there is a, you know, I'm from Chicago. There is a Paris, Illinois. So I guess he was represented for that. Or does represent that, but but not Paris, France. I'll tell you. Yeah, Paris, Illinois didn't vote for him. I don't think so. <laughs> Probably not. But, uh, uh, well, I, you know, and, and, and while we're on that, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, what will what will that mean? I know billions of dollars would have left our 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 economy, and and I was reading a New York Times article about. Uh, the United States being uh, the largest uh, uh, polluter in world history. And I've been telling my, my listeners, you got to look at this because uh, th- these are what I call weaponized lies. And they go back to 1850 and count all of our pollution uh, to date. And uh, that just that just skews everything. I mean, the, you can't go back to 1850. I don't think... Uh, India had electricity in 1850, so... No, certainly not, and there were hundreds of millions of peasants in China that didn't, uh, could barely get a, a cup of rice a day to keep right. themselves going. So, uh, you know, going back to 1850 is nutty. As the president pointed out, we are the most environmentally conscious country in the world today, mm-hmm. and we've got the cleanest environment, and boy, why would we want to handcuff ourselves and our own domestic industry uh, in order to let uh, China, India, and the rest of them uh, go out and pollute everything and and dirty up the world and all this for point two. One of the most interesting things he said, and I, this really stuck with me, Gary, the point two percent or point two degrees rather Celsius over a hundred years. Right. And he said uh, the the specific number that he used was the amount of for the amount that it will cost the United States over the, the course of the next 30 years could be made up by Chinese pollution in two weeks. <laughs> now, I mean, for, for this, the American people are supposed to pay billions of dollars? Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. Well, Give I, the American taxpayers a break, too. See, and that puts it in the right perspective because China is by and far and away the largest current producer out there as far as co2 and and uh not caring about the environment at all but you know i've often made the comment they have trouble predicting tomorrow's weather how how can we lend any credibility to weather a hundred years from now (laughs) i was in a taxi back here in washington the other day the taxi driver said to me uh he said, you know, I woke up this morning and they were saying we we're going to have clear skies and here it is in a real thunderstorm. He said, how can people, how can these weather forecasters be paid so much when they're so wrong so often? Yeah. yeah and, well, you know, that, that really did say a lot. But but you're absolutely right. No, nobody can predict that far out and saying by the year 2100, we're going to get CO2 under control. Yeah. My gosh, that's more than 80 years. Uh, you know, we, we, we can't look that far. We can't even look out five years. Right. We're seeing right. that now with the federal budget. 
Well, and, and you and I emit CO2 uh, about every 10 seconds here. So, uh, I, I, I mean, hope we're going to keep doing I, it for a few more years. I yeah. hope so. But, uh, Ed, I want to switch gears a little bit because sure. I had my producer call you based on uh, one of your columns uh, that I read the other day that really hit home. Any Anytime I see uh, the word self-reliance or uh, independence, uh, I tend to, to, to grab that. That's kind of what this whole show is about. It's where we got the name, an economy of one uh, rather than a – a group or, or anything like that, but you wrote a column for the Washington Times uh, about self-reliance. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've said this a hundred times, uh, if I've said it once, We're, we've lost our, our, our pioneer gene in there, or a lot of people have lost their pioneer gene. If we were to settle a country like America today with the people that we have, I'm not sure we'd ever make it off the beach, would we? Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I don't know that we get as far as Ohio anyway. Uh, it's, it, it really is. When you think back, and Gary, you and I have both read Alexis de Tocqueville and his Democracy yep. in America, yep. where he talks about self-reliance and how essential that is to the whole American character. And that's, that's what gave the, not only the pilgrims the courage to come across, to come across the stormy North Atlantic, but then gave our forefathers the the wherewithal and, the, and the, the nerve to go west and covered wagons to go beyond Ohio and and, and go beyond the Mississippi and, mm-hmm. and go all the way to the West Coast. It's uh, it, it and boy, you look now at the nanny state that seems to em- so many people to embrace. That's not the way America was, and that's not the way I don't think America should be. Now that that being said, how did we get here? I mean, it, it didn't happen overnight. Is is this a generational thing? Did us baby boomers uh, create these snowflakes, or has this been been building up for for quite some time? No, it's been building up really since FDR and the New Deal, and some of that, of course, was a reaction to very real economic hard times in the 1930s. We understand that, uh, and then after the after World War II. Uh, times were better, and, uh, well, we'll just leave these uh, little programs in place. Well, then LBJ came along, and the Great Society uh, kind of took them and, and made them a lot bigger and a lot uh, put a lot more people into eligibility factors for them. And here we are now where so many people, for so many trivial reasons, seem to seem to call on government to bail them out of, of silly little things that, that really ought to be self-reliant and ought to be happening in in what we at Heritage call our civil society, which mm. is local people taking care of local problems through churches, through local civic groups, and all the rest. You know, it's interesting because uh, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in the mid-50s and and grew up in the, the 60s. And I can remember going to the grocery store with my mom and buying groceries. And at dinner that night, part of the conversation was, do you know who I saw using food stamps? And... It, it would have been uh, an embarrassment for our family to need that kind of help, but it was a topic of conversation at dinner, and I can remember very shortly thereafter, uh, we helped that family. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, you're absolutely right. It was our community. I grew up in a town of 2,500 people. Uh, today it's 2,500 people, mostly the same 25. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, we, we took care of people in our community, 
And uh, there was some embarrassment, a little bit of shame to depending on the government. Shame seems to be gone nowadays. It's, 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 shame's been replaced by, by what, entitlement or, or something? Well, yeah, and entitlement and almost a pride in terms of how, how can I get some more? Uh, mm-hmm. How can I help myself to more than my fair share? And boy, that's not what America's all about. You're, you're absolutely right in terms of, of self-help and of, of local communities taking care of their own. And that is what America's always been about. That's, that's why you know, we have local food banks in our, in our suburban town here in Washington and, and things like that, you, mm-hmm. so that everybody doesn't become dependent on government programs, on, on, on food stamps and, and all the other government welfare programs that are out there. Uh, I, I got to admit, uh, and I want to ask you this question. I got to admit that when when I see people gaming the system, when I see them not even trying to be self-reliant or take care of their own, and then April 15th wa- rolls around and I see the number of zeros I have to write a check for and send in every year, I got to tell you, it kind of beats the charitable bone right out of my body. Um, I, I don't want to turn into Scrooge you know, very bad. But does does this also kind of perpetuate the problem that, you know, we don't have to take care of people in our community because that's what I pay taxes for and the government yeah, does that's it? Yeah, that's what I pay tax. Exactly. That's what I pay taxes for. That's what that's what uh, Uncle Sam will take care of. Uh, so why, why should we uh, have to do it twice mm-hmm. uh, or uh, how, however people tend to look at it? But it's absolutely the wrong way around. And boy, I think back one of Heritage's uh, major achievements in the uh, oh, in the recent past, at least, was 1996 with uh, real federal welfare reform, where right. welfare was re- was replaced by at least going out and learning a job skill and uh, making yourself available in the job market. And what we saw, Gary, at that point was all the trend lines started moving the right way. People were more proud of themselves because they weren't out there, in fact, taking those uh, those freebies, those entitlements, uh, so-called entitlements from government, uh, because they were self-reliant. And that's that's what the whole American spirit has always been about, and that's what it should be about. We've been speaking with Dr. Edward Fulner. He's the founder and current president of the Heritage Foundation, one of my favorite organizations. Uh, Ed, this has been a real treat for me. I appreciate all your time tonight. We'll put all the information, of course, up on our website and Facebook. My wife and I are subscribers to your daily emails. Uh, I read all the stuff I can get out of Heritage. You do great work there and really appreciate uh, your time tonight and the work that Heritage Foundation does. And I hope we can, can tap you on the shoulder again sometime soon. Great, Gary. I'd love to do it again soon. And thanks for that plug for Heritage and and all my colleagues there who are doing such good work, as I say, rebuilding civil society. Yeah, one person at a time. I appreciate it, Ed. There we go. Have a good evening. Thanks, Gary. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. In April of 1990, 8.7 million Americans were self-employed. Today, 8.4 million Americans are self-employed. 
So in, let's see, it's 10, 20, 27 years, it's gone down by 300,000. Not a big deal, right? Not a big number. But as with all mathematical statistics, you have to look at the population. In April of 1990, there were 249 million people living in the United States. Today, there are 321 million people living in the United States. So what this means as a percentage of the population, self-employed are way, way down. In fact, there's one study that said self-employed uh, Americans are down by more than 20% between 1991 and 2010. We're down 53% between 1977 and 2010. If you look at the number of startup jobs per thousand Americans, under Bush Sr., it was 11.3, Clinton, 11.2, Bush Jr., 10.8, and Obama, 7.8. So why is this happening? Why, why, why the big decline? in startups, in, in self-employed people. Now, you hear the, the story about self, uh, startups on, like, Kickstarter and those kind of Internet funding uh, vehicles. But those are the, the kind of few and far between. Um, there's a lot of Kickstarter uh, businesses, a lot of Kickstarter funding, but in the scope of things, the vast majority of those don't go anywhere. A while back, there was an open letter written by a small business owner by the name of Don Chernoff, and he gives a few points as to why people don't start their own business anymore. When he started his own business, before the Affordable Care Act, he paid $200 a month for his health insurance. Now, the Affordable Care Act in place, he pays over $400 a month. His deductible went over $6,000, and his out-of-pocket costs have skyrocketed. He spends dozens of hours and thousands of dollars for tax accounting work every spring. Now, this one is his own fault. He said, many years ago when I quit a perfectly good job to start my own small business, I was shocked to learn that I had to pay both my share and what had been my employer's share of Social Security. Well, I, I don't have any empathy for him uh, on this one. <clears throat> he should have researched what that business would cost him. Between state, federal, and local taxes, he pays sometimes 50% uh, or more in taxes. 
Now, I think this is part of why people uh, start fewer business uh, businesses. I think a big part of it is the regulatory barriers. If you talk to a successful small business person, taxes aren't the major irritant or, or roadblock. It's regulation. It's regulation. I've had business owners that um, state brings in a whole team to talk about usury laws. I've had people say, politicians or bureaucrats, regulators, whatever you want to call them, say to this business owner that if you unload something off a truck into your factory and later move that pallet of stuff or box of stuff to a different place in your factory or to a, a uh, machine, you have to pay a usury law, usury tax, I'm sorry. You have to pay, it's in your own building. You bought it, you paid for it, you sat it there. When you need it, you moved it. They, they want to tax you on that movement. I've had businesses where other bureaucrats come in and uh, threaten to shut them down over uh, safety violations. Now, do we need safety in the workplace? Absolutely. Do we need those people coming in and saying, uh, you know what, your fire extinguisher is three inches too low. Uh, you need to move that. I had one person want to improve uh, his billing, want to spend money on improvements. Couldn't because the counter in the bathroom didn't meet current Americans with Disability Act standards. They needed to lower the bathroom counter an inch and a half. Inch and a half or they wouldn't get a permit to remodel part of the building. I'm telling you, this is the stuff that prevents people from going into business for themselves. This is the stuff that is killing the small business owner. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. See you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Yeah.